This episode of New Politics was recorded on August 17, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at shape-shifting and blame-shifting in politics, stimulus payments and the post-pandemic economy, and the real reason for the recall of Parliament, political fundraising. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, social media advisor to Victorian Liberal Tim Smith. The fine art of politics is based around taking credit for all the positive news and making sure someone else takes the blame for all the negatives. It's the skill of deflecting, obfuscating and ensuring that the responsibility always stops somewhere else and doesn't land at your own doorstep. But there are limits to this strategy. It may take a while for the public to latch on to leaders who continuously shirk responsibility, but once the public's lived reality stops matching up to the political narrative, that's when all the problems for a politician start. The federal government is behaving like a secretive star chamber where decisions are being made behind closed doors, scandals are being swept away and recently the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, promised full cooperation with an inquiry into the Ruby Princess disaster only for us to find out he actually blocked two federal officials from appearing. The US President, Harry Truman, had the famous sign on his desk, the buck stops here, as a clear statement that he had the ultimate responsibility for government actions. Who's the person who takes responsibility in this federal government? You look around and they're not so easy to find. He clearly has built a career on looking good to outsiders, but not actually being very productive on the inside. Now, this has worked out well for him in terms of, well, he's become prime minister. He's had a lot of high-flying jobs. But you struggle to find people who've worked with him who actually have very positive things to say about him. Now, I know that it's a management strategy to spin everything so it looks good. And of course, that's politics. Probably the most famous is Keating's The Recession We Had to Have, spinning the idea that the recession was a a good thing economically, ultimately. Now, possibly it was from one level, but for the people who'd lost jobs, who'd lost income, who faced a very uncertain future, at least in the medium term, it wasn't a great look. And to be fair, Keating was being somewhat honest. He at least acknowledged that there was a recession that they were managing. Scott Morrison spends a lot of time announcing things re-announcing things, promising money, promising relief. Not a lot of it goes through. Uh, I was reading today that movie or the studios that they announced the not really that generous art grants aren't eligible for the grants anyway. So presumably they donated their time. And of course, just because they donated the time shouldn't make them eligible, but you'd think you would go through the details with the people saying, well, you can't have this for these reasons and we've picked you so it looks at least that we're doing the right thing. I think you're right in that the public is starting starting to see through the charade, but they're now starting to see that there are other alternatives and that the charade isn't a terribly good one. And I think that's the main problem. There are issues that come out of that, of course, and 
you can spin, you can obfuscate to different parts of the community. And I think as far as the political process is concerned, you can get away with that once you start promising certain things to the aged care sector or you start promising things to the Ruby Princess inquiry or you start promising things to the arts sector or different parts of the community. But the problem is that once the the entire community starts to realise, hang on, what we're being told is actually different to what ends up happening and what ends up being the case on the ground. And, and I think a good case is the current Royal Commission into the aged care sector. Now, there's some really damning material coming out from that Royal Commission. It's relating to how underprepared the aged care sector was in dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, and not just in Melbourne, but across Australia. So many of these existing issues were predicted, but the federal government is adamant that nobody could have foreseen all of the problems. And one issue that did come up for Scott Morrison, that he was so hell-bent on letting the sector know that there was a plan. Now, he did come up for criticism in the lead-up to the pandemic problems in Victoria, He was criticised for not having a plan, but it was almost like he had to come out the following day and let everyone know, yes, there was a plan. Let's listen to this small snippet. There has been a plan and it has been updated. And so we completely reject the assertion that there was a plan, not a plan, because there was a plan. So there is Scott Morrison just telling everyone, yes, there was a plan, that we've had a plan for such a long, long time for the aged care sector. It was almost like the announcement that there was a plan was far more important than what was actually happening in the aged care sector in Melbourne. He wasn't that concerned about the coronavirus cases or the infections in aged care. He wasn't so concerned about the number of deaths in those aged care homes. He was more concerned about letting everyone know that, yes, we had a plan. I think the plan is a lot of blame and a lot of evading uh, responsibility. And responsibility, I mean, not who caused it. Obviously, I don't think we can blame the federal government for causing it. They can take the responsibility for fixing quite a lot of it. And he's doing his best to avoid having to actually do anything to fix anything, hoping that New South Wales or Victoria or any of the states really will fix it. And then he'll swoop in and take credit. Well, I guess that is the basic process of politics, taking the credit for all the good news and sweeping away the bad news or making sure someone else takes the blame or the responsibility. But there are limits to this process. You can only do this for a certain amount of time. Morrison's leadership is now two years old and and these perceptions have been set in. Once those limits to how much blame and responsibility has been deflected off to other people and the, and the public starts to see right through the process that's going on, there's no turning back. And I think that Morrison may have already reached that point with the public. Abraham Lincoln, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And that's a lesson that they seem to have forgotten. And I think, too, we've had just enough of the public fooled for the last three elections. And I think that well is running very dry. It will be interesting to see how things pan out. I don't think he'll be dumped. I was sort of wondering if they'd dump him before his two years anniversary on the 18th of August. But it is, in fact, very difficult to dump a sitting Prime Minister. Liberal Party rules state that you can only call a leadership challenge after an election, which I understand now is there is some regretting voting for that. 
Well, they've broken so many other rules. I can't imagine why they wouldn't break that particular rule if they wanted to remove a sitting Prime Minister. But there's probably a little while to go before that may even start being discussed again. But the other factor that did come up recently was that the Ruby Princess report was released on Friday. The Ruby Princess inquiry was set up several months ago to find out what happened in the coronavirus outbreak at Sydney Harbour earlier this year. And that's a scandal that's implicated the New South Wales state government and various departments within the federal government and that's when 2,700 passengers were allowed to disembark from the cruise ship without any medical checks. We know that there were over 700 infections and 20 deaths that resulted from that outbreak. Initially when the inquiry was set up, Morrison said that he'd offer full cooperation with the inquiry but recently the lawyers from the federal government have threatened to or they did threaten to take the inquiry to the high court in a bid to stop two federal officers appearing at the inquiry. And these two witnesses were absolutely critical to the inquiry. One was from the Department of Agriculture, the other one was from Border Force. And we can only assume that the information that these two government officials would have been providing to the inquiry would have been highly damaging to the federal government or possibly result in criminal charges. You know, that's the purpose of an inquiry. You get to the heart of the matter. But Going to the High Court to stop two government officials giving evidence doesn't sound like the right sort of cooperation that Scott Morrison promised in the first place. It, it was extraordinary that New South Wales Health gets all the blame. Now, there's no shortage of blame to go around. Certainly, New South Wales Health did some things that they probably shouldn't have done, or more accurately, didn't do things that they should have done. The cruise liner did some things that they shouldn't have done. Ultimately, though... The responsibility for borders and quarantine falls under the jurisdiction of the Australian Constitution, which is a federal government responsibility. New South Wales Health, for example, cannot close a national border or open a national border. That decision can only be made at a federal level. Obviously, Ruby Princess Lines can't open and close a border. (laughs) And letting the people off meant that the Australian border and the federal Australian border was open to them. There's no eastern New South Wales border, really. Sure, New South Wales stops on the coast, whereas you can control movement between Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria and New South Wales, South Australia and New South Wales and the Northern Territory and New South Wales. You can't control movement from overseas into New South Wales. That's why there are federal police agents at airports. You very, very rarely see state police agents or state police officers in international airports. I haven't read the report yet. I was hoping to read it before we podcast today, but it's 158 pages. There are some extraordinary things in it, it seems, that might lead you to conclude other things to what Walker SC concluded. Not hearing from federal representatives, I think, puts a massive hole in things. And we can't know, and I'm not even about to speculate what they might have said, but I suspect it would have changed the conclusions massively, which is why they were blocked from speaking. Well, that's the key point. We can only assume that what they were intending to provide to the inquiry would have been quite damning for the federal government. And of course, it gets back to the point that we made before. That's what federal governments do. That's what governments of all persuasions try to do. They try to minimise the bad news. But 
when it comes to public interest matters, that's why you have inquiries. And we know that there's that old adage about you never create an inquiry unless you know what the answers are first. And that could be another case where this inquiry did create the answers before it even started. And we can see that the federal government has not been blamed at all in this report. But the essential factor isn't so much who gets blamed, but the, the public can adjudicate or assess who's responsible for this at the next election. But the most important part is is having these problems resolved and making sure they don't happen again. Now, we do keep hearing that this is a once in a hundred years pandemic and we never know when the next one is going to arise, but it's best if whatever systems are put in place can withstand these types of emergencies whenever they happen. But irrespective of who gets the blame, the public isn't too concerned about the blame, although that is an important part of this process. They they want the problems identified quickly and resolved and make sure they don't happen again. That's what good government is all about. I think genuine hindsight issues. Well, you know, looking at it now, we might have done this. I think the public, from whomever, I think the public will forgive. No one alive can remember what it was like in 1918. We didn't get SARS or MERS in Australia. And the AIDS epidemic was a little bit different in that it didn't spread through the wider community in the way that this can. It got into the the wider community through blood transfusions and things, but a lot of behavior modification, screening of blood, etc., etc., a lot of people didn't see the effects of the AIDS epidemic directly. This is different. This is anyone can be affected at any time. And it's social distancing, wearing a mask, staying inside as much as you can, being smart, not visiting people, staying away from vulnerable people, uh, at least physically, still ring them, of course, still keep in touch with them. And so for a lot of people in Australia, this is completely unprecedented. So I think the public will forgive. I don't think they will forgive completely avoidable and obvious mistakes and poor errors of judgment. Recently, we had the Lebanese government resign after that massive chemical blast in Beirut and that destroyed a large part of the city. Going back further in time, 25 years ago, the Dutch government resigned because of issues relating to the provision of UN peacekeepers in Srebrenica and and that mismanagement resulted in the massacre of 10,000 people in a UN safe haven. Uh, The Dutch government resigned after massive local protests at the time. Australia doesn't seem to have this tradition of governments resigning when they've severely mismanaged events such as the Ruby Princess disaster in Sydney or hotel quarantine issues in Melbourne, but there have been calls for the resignation of Daniel Andrews as Premier of Victoria. And and these calls have come from Jim Penman. He's the head of Jim's Mowers. I'm not sure if Daniel Andrews is going to listen to him, but it's also come from other business leaders and some people from the Victoria Liberal Party. Now, sure, Daniel Andrews has made mistakes. He's acknowledged those. And and I guess he'll face his reckoning at the next election, whenever that is. But it's probably not the best time for a state premier to resign, considering that they've been doing most of the heavy work during this time of pandemic. Daniel Andrews was who I was thinking of, in that he's fronted up every day, he's asked questions, he's clearly worked extremely hard. This is not, of course, to diminish the effects of the disease on the people, you know, the 5,000 people who've got it in Victoria at all. But Daniel Andrews has a fairly high 
approval rating in Victoria. There's 25% of Victorians who seem to be very sceptical of conventional thinking. (laughs) And they're refusing to wear masks and they're refusing to social distance. So in response, he's brought in heavy fines. But there's also a, a lot of Victorians who are taking it very seriously. And, you know, they hate being locked at home. They hate that it looks like it's going to be extended. But they understand that this is what's necessary to beat it. Otherwise, it'll just bubble round and we'll all eventually get it. And so I think Daniel Andrews' mistakes, while some of them were maybe severe, will be forgiven, whereas other premiers and prime ministers won't be forgiven because there's clearly other agenda happening. Who knows what's going on within the Victoria Liberal Party, but there's been over-the-top attacks coming from Josh Frydenberg, Tim Wilson, Matthew Guy. He was the former leader of the Liberal Party in Victoria. And more recently, former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, he came out in support of Daniel Andrews, and Tim Smith started attacking Mike Baird for coming out with this support. Now, Mike Baird, he's from the same side of politics. He was the Liberal Party Premier in New South Wales. Now, there's a completely different dynamic between Victoria Liberal Party and the New South Wales Liberal Party, but it just seems like this unhinged attack. Now, it hasn't been as severe as it has been over the past few weeks, but the Victoria Liberal Party is just keeping on with its attacks. Tim Smith, Matthew Guy, Tim Wilson, Josh Frydenberg, and, and of course, that's the nature of politics. But you're just wondering, is this the right time to continue with this attack? And is the public getting sick of this sort of process as well? Given the response I've seen to Tim Smith and Matthew Guy and Michael O'Brien on social media, but also in general media and, and speaking to people, I think that they've put themselves on a path that will be very hard to get off. And it's a path that leads to political oblivion. The continual attacks, the continual questioning of policy. Oh, they're locking us down. This is a terrible thing. This is a terrible thing. This is terrible. We should be open. We should be open. Open back up. Oh, we should be locked down. That type of thing doesn't go unnoticed. I I think a lot of it is the mouthing of vested interests, the media, other vested interests who are more worried about the economy. You get not from them, but from their supporters, useless lives people hanging around who don't need to be here, this awful, awful, awful eugenics type behaviour that wouldn't be out of place in Idi Amin's Uganda, for example. And I can't see why people are tolerating it, to be quite honest. And in fact, a lot of people are starting not to tolerate it. A couple of uh, projections have suggested that the Liberal Party will lose more seats in Victoria next election. Certain seats are now even being targeted by groups like Get Up to remove the Liberal member and put in a strong independent. Whether these will be successful or not, I don't know. Having said that, Zali Stegall's success against Tony Abbott in Warringah has been an inspiration for these groups nationally. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, is stimulus support funding hitting the mark and are the right areas being supported in a post-pandemic recovery? There must be some kind of way out of here Said the joker 
Still many problems with coronavirus support payments and some of it is still not hitting the mark. JobKeeper is a good program in principle but it's being rorted by some of Australia's largest companies and other industries are being left behind. The hardware giant, Bunnings, has been receiving JobKeeper even though its sales have increased by 19% during the first six months of the year. And several retailers have paid increased dividends to shareholders after receiving millions in JobKeeper support. The federal government did take a long time to implement JobKeeper, possibly too long, but surely it would have been enough time for them to create a system that would have been fair and effective and make sure that it went to the right people and the right businesses. On the other hand, there are sectors that are still waiting for support. The promised arts funding package in the $250 million JobMaker program is still months away from being available. November at the earliest, and that's probably being optimistic. And... Other programs the government announced are being delayed and there's still no sign of any support for the university sector. The government is still making its big push for a gas-led recovery, even though there, there are more jobs in renewable energy. But And also, the gas industry is only a small part of the economy. There are large profits to be made in export earnings from this sector, but it's likely to benefit a small part of the economy and a small part of the community. Now, to me, it just seems strange that this is a small part of the economy for the government to keep pushing when there are so many other areas of the economy that are being left behind. It's an unusual strategy by this government. I'm just still trying to work out what they're attempting to achieve with this. I think what they're attempting to achieve is to keep the money out of the pockets of those who need it in favour of those who are their donors, who are their supporters. Look, it's fantastic that Bunnings... You know, the the success is good because, in theory, it meant that they could keep everyone employed. You know, they're a big employer, Bunnings. Building has kept going and maintenance needs to be done. And Bunnings has brought through some quite clever notions of beating the pandemic. You You ring in and they will meet you in the car park and put all the stuff in the boot of your car. Having said that, with 15% increase, they didn't need JobKeeper. Whole industries were excluded from JobKeeper where there is no work. And of course, that's not to blame Bunnings and all of these other companies that have been receiving JobKeeper. There are some large accounting firms that are also receiving JobKeeper. Maybe they've used clever accounting to become eligible, but if that's what the scheme is and that's what the system is, primarily it was if your company or business dropped off by 30%, well, you were eligible for JobKeeper and not just for one employee or two, but for every employee in your company. Now, the system is there, that's not to blame Bunnings, but if the system is there, why not use it as much as you can? The way I would have done the package is the same way Rudd and Swan. I think Rudd and Swan had it at 120000 We can afford to be more generous because there were people who were on that type of money who suddenly had no income and needed help. And you just pay everybody $1,000 a week. None of the big people seem to understand is that money flows up. They'll get it. 
we still need to buy televisions. We still need to buy groceries. We'll still go to Bunnings. We'll still go to accounting firms to do our taxes or what have you. They get the money anyway. But if it goes through the lower income people, you get less defaults. You get less debt collection. You get less stress. You get less. Everyone's happier. Will it go to people who've recently died? Sure. That'll either get put back into government probate or uh, be given to the descendants. The, the point is a proper economic stimulus starts at the lower end and floats up rather than starts at the top and stays there. And this is where they've got it completely wrong. If you're in the arts and entertainment industry, you, c- you couldn't get JobKeeper. If you were certain types of sole traders, you couldn't get JobKeeper. Total income becomes fungible. You might make all your money in October and then bits dribble through. So you haven't dropped the 30%, but you're not getting the little the little drips through. I'm thinking of the bushfires where people were making two thirds of their in- income in January and couldn't because of the bushfire. This type of thing becomes a problematic. It should have just been, yep, We have everybody's bank account. If you don't have it, give it to us and bang, in goes the money and it goes in till it's over, which would probably also, shall we say, stimulate them to try and solve the pandemic a lot faster than they have been. And that money comes back. So stimulus funding and the way that that's managed, that's one aspect of the economy at the moment. But just looking into the future and governments are responsible for developing economies of the future, whether there's good times or difficult times like we are at the moment. But the National COVID-19 Task Force, they're actually pushing a gas-led recovery program. And it's not like they're producing these ideas in isolation. That would be pushed forward by the government as well. But they're pushing a gas-led recovery program, even though it has been shown through research that there are far more jobs in renewable energy and there'd be far greater benefits to the economy and the environment. The head of the task force, Neville Power, he has substantial interests in a new energy company called Strike. Their business is primarily gas production. Now, it seems to me that there's an obvious conflict of interest here, but there's no political narrative or clear economic case being put forward about what this gas-led recovery actually means. Gas exports have been taxed at very low levels over the past 20 years, so the government has been missing out on tax revenues in the past and they'll miss out on tax revenues in the future. It's not a sector that employs many people, so it's hard to see where all of this is going. And I've been thinking about this prospect. How does a gas-led recovery benefit the 12% of the workforce that's currently unemployed or all of those other sectors that have been wiped out by the coronavirus? How does a musician or someone in the entertainment industry end up benefiting by this gas-led recovery program? How does a university academic that's lost their job, how do they benefit from this gas-led recovery program? Certainly... Neville Power benefits a great deal. It's quite awful that such an obvious and open conflict of interest was allowed to go. But then the motto of the federal government could be obvious and open conflicts of interests. Welcome here. They don't like education. They don't like entertainment unless it's just sort of appears to them on iTunes without any understanding that a single that appears on the radio probably requires... 20 people in work. They don't seem to like tourism. They don't like new ideas. Australia has an incredible opportunity to restructure its economy at the moment. And we go back to boring old mined energy sources, which will only last us another 20 years. And then what? Now is the time where you could start to look at, well, how do we make an economy of ideas? How do we make an economy 
a service economy that's sustainable? How do we fix our bushfires? The bushfire crisis, the flooding crisis, well, it's really the environmental crisis that we're, we're looking down the barrel of. How do we keep all these people who have clearly been working in not terribly productive jobs, how do we make them productive? How do we make a better society? And we, we have, of course, blown this opportunity. Well, it might be a missed opportunity right now, but the other factor is that we're only six months into this current pandemic. If we look at what occurred after the Second World War, we saw the implementation of the Breton Woods Agreement, the development of the World Bank, a, a number of reconstruction programs as well. It, it took a few years for these programs for, and for the Keynesian type of economic thinking to be implemented, and the effects of those programs only became evident perhaps five to ten years after they were implemented and also if we look at the next major economic change that came in after that with with Thatcher and Reagan in the early 1980s the full effects of those neo-liberalist policies maybe took a decade to take hold so whatever style of economic thinking takes hold for the future and we know that this current government is probably not intellectually capable of thinking of an alternative mode of economic modeling or economic thinking it will take some time to see the benefits of that system. And, and we also have to take into account that much of Australian political thinking is based around the three-year election cycle. We've got an election in 2022 and then another one after that in 2025. The type of economic model that we might have at that time might not have even been thought of yet. Yeah, everything needs to be torn down and rebuilt. We're working on a system that dates from 1854, really, and it's, it was based on a model that started in 1700 or so. We're now in 2020. The way we do things has changed. We can be a lot smarter, a lot more efficient, a lot less lumbering, and we have completely the wrong people, and that's in every party. I don't know what the solution is except a, a total clean out of all parties, and maybe you know we've reached the end of the party system. Maybe we need 30 years of minority governments like they have in many countries of the world who have to work together, New Zealand being one of them. Although it looks like polling suggests that the New Zealand Labor Party will get an outright majority, which will be the first one in decades, I think. There is a strong relationship between the political system and, and the economic system that you have. So in New Zealand, there's well, they've got a unitary government over there, so their system is quite different to the federated system in Australia. But also, Australia's got the two-party preferred system. And if you've got a two-party preferred system, well, that's likely to benefit the two parties at the top. Within New Zealand's mixed-member proportional representational system, well, that's necessarily a system where you do have to have cooperative governments. You're rarely going to have a one particular party that has the majority as you mentioned it doesn't happen very often in New Zealand I believe the last time it happened was 10 years ago it's likely to happen this time around uh, when they have their election in September but their political system means that political parties do have to form coalitions and they need to work in the best interest in the country and that's why maybe there needs to be talk about not just reforming the economy or looking at new economic ways of thinking there needs to be a reform of the political system here as well and possibly looking at a mixed member representational system and it's it's not like it's an alien system to Australia the ACT has got such a system the Tasmanian government operates in that system as 
as well. Constitutionally, there's no barriers to changing the, the way that the system operates. But of course, there needs to be political goodwill on, on all sides of politics. It means that some political parties are going to give up something. The, the way that the political system is currently structured, it's not a system that encourages political parties to give up their benefits, to give up their political power. And that's probably one of the biggest barriers to changing the political system. Yeah, it's not constitutional, it's institutional. When they roll a truckload of money up to me, to my front door, I'll tell them exactly what they need to know and you'll get good value for money, taxpayers. But I'm not holding, I haven't budgeted for that yet. When you see me driving around in a Lamborghini, you know that things are going to change for the better, at least for me. Now, there's a couple of other issues going on in federal politics. Now, most people would realise that Parliament hasn't been sitting for a long, long time, too long for my liking. Scott Morrison has been resisting all of the pressure from the Labor Party and the community to hold Parliament. Now, whether that's in person or through Zoom meetings or other technology. But then all of a sudden, he, he backtracked and decided, yes, Parliament would be sitting in Canberra. And then we found out the real reason. It's not for any form of benevolence or accountability or commitment to Parliament, but it's because the Federal Liberal Party wants to hold not just the one, not just two, but three party political fundraisers at $2,500 per head. And they're going ahead with this, and this is against medical advice recommending that these events should not be going ahead. You know, Australia, the lucky country, we've been very lucky even though the figures seem high, globally speaking, our figures have been extremely low. I know that Sir James Killen, one of the more decent members of parliament we've ever had, used to rail against what he saw as problems in the Hawke and Keating governments. And he said, parliament is supreme. If parliament's not working, the country is in trouble. And governments who couldn't control the parliament lost control and oppositions. And I'm still trying to work out if Scott Morrison agrees with this, which is why he's avoiding Parliament, or he just sees Parliament as so unimportant to what he wants to do that he can ignore it. And I suppose it could be both. It's a shame, having just done a screed on how things need to, to change, it's a shame to see the traditions of Parliament being undermined for the venal ambitions of the factions that run government. Well, there's two factors going on here. Parliament had been cancelled for a long, long time. Cancelled, deferred, whatever you want to call it. There wasn't any impetus to actually look at different ways of holding Parliament aside from the, the face-to-face meetings. And there was a small working group that was looking into different ways of holding Parliament, whether that be through Zoom meetings or other, other sorts of technology that could be useful. But it was just the, the day after this working group started meeting, that's when Morrison decided to change his tune about that. So there's, there is that factor that, no, Parliament's not going to sit. But wait a minute, we've got a fundraiser to hold in Canberra, so Parliament is going to sit. And that, of course, means that every MP from all around Australia comes to Canberra, and that's when you can hold your meetings, you can do your fundraising. So that's one particular issue, recalling Parliament primarily for that purpose. 
but also using Parliament House itself for the purpose of political fundraising. Now, this Parliament, it's not like a church. It's just not a good look for the Parliament House to be used for these purposes. And we first heard about Parliament House being used for party political fundraising in 2014, and that's when the former Speaker of the House, Bronwyn Bishop, she used her internal office suite to raise funds for the Liberal Party. Now, that was just a small event, but it's sort of branched out into other areas as well. The Great Hall has been used for fundraising as well. And, and as I mentioned, Parliament House, is it's not a sacred site, but there's something very improper about using such a location to raise money for a political party. That's when the process started back in 2013, 2014. And the Liberal Party is now using the building as their, it's almost like it's their own venue to generate incomes. It's, it's, it's actually quite tawdry. Parliament House is not a political building in that no party owns it. You are there because the people have voted you in to represent their interests. I've been advocating a long time that political donation should be banned, that we should have publicly funded elections because it brings in all kinds of nasty elements to politics and to public policy. Parliament House has to be politically neutral, <laughs> which is an odd thing to say for the you know most political building in the country, but it shouldn't be used for fundraisers, for private events, for political advantage, except the political advantage won by debate and due process and all of that. In itself, it doesn't belong to the Liberal Party, and for them to hold it there is disgraceful. Had they held it at Liberal Party headquarters, that's their business, that's fine. Hold as many of them as you like. I'll still be against them, but they're not against the law. There is the Midwinter Ball, which raises money for charity, and that's a politically neutral event. That's a, an event that includes all MPs and their partners to arrive at Parliament House and they raise money for a good cause. But my point is, well, Parliament shouldn't be used for any of these sort of fundraising events, whether it's for the Labor Party or the Liberal Party or all political parties. It just shouldn't be going on at all. And I guess that's where all of this started. Like The perception would have been, well, we're using Parliament House for the midwinter ball to, to raise money. Why can't we do our fundraising at Parliament House as well? The likely amount that the Liberal Party will raise from these three fundraisers is, is around $150,000. And it seems quite improper to do this, and it just seems not the right thing to do. It does show, I think, a Prime Minister and a government and a, or a cabinet who doesn't understand the nature or the role of what they're doing. It doesn't understand how to act with propriety, doesn't understand what they're just there because it suits others for them to be there and they're lining their pockets. That's what it looks like. If the Prime Minister wants to come on and, and defend his position, let's do it. Be more than happy to, to talk. He's not going to come on. I don't think we've ever had a government who has understood less about governance than the one we've had or the three we've had since 2013. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more up until the end of August, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic and it's goodbye to our listeners.
I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.